Then John Kohler, the director of the Bible Chair of the Southwest. Uh, many of you know him and has preached many times that uh, our ARF joint services will come and bring us God's word this evening. It's Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through verse 36. This is God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Please give it your full attention. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel! Help, this is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus and Ephesian, the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. You may be seated. Thank you, Jeremy. 
Recently, I read an article in a Christianity Today magazine, and it was on the topic of conflict and conflict resolution within the church. And the author of this article said that 75 to 80 percent of the conflict that he had dealt with in the church had something to do with the pastor. Now, I know there's many pastors in the room tonight, so uh, it's kind of dangerous ground that we're treading, but I believe that you guys are in either the 15 or the 20 percent in that, so um, not to throw stones at y'all in any way. I know of a church many years back that was experiencing conflict with its pastor. The root issue was the fact that this particular pastor was, well, he was lazy. And uh, he wouldn't spend a disciplined amount of time per week studying God's word in order to then preach it to his people. Instead, he hired a young research assistant. This particular research assistant was fresh out of seminary. And he was a hard worker, and he would craft the sermon all week, and then the preacher the night before would take the sermon and and preach it as if it was his own work. Well, things were going smoothly for a little while until the young and zealous research assistant was hired by another church. And then the wheels fell off. This particular church was a good-sized church. There was a lot of staff members, and uh, when the sermons were no longer having any depth to them, the staff began to be very uneasy, and the church as well. One longtime staff member uh, went to the senior preaching pastor, and he was going to try to resolve the issue, you know, one-on-one. You know how things went. It didn't go well. The situation was now completely unworkable. And finally, in this church system, I know it's not like yours, but in this system, The elders are called in only at the last minute, you know, if things are out of hand, and they were. The elders called in, and and they looked at the issues, and they said, well, you know, I guess we've got to fire the preacher. And they did. It was probably the right call to make in that situation. The problem, though, was that the preacher had made a lot of friends in this church, and the people in the congregation that were his friends, they didn't care if he was feeding them the word of God. All they cared about is, was he their friend? And they could answer yes to that. The other group, feeling very frustrated, they wanted the truth given to them on the Lord's day, and it wasn't happening. It was a no-win situation. Eventually, the preacher left, the church split. How many of you guys have seen situations like that? Yeah, probably we could all shake our head and say, we've been there. Sometimes when we deal with conflict within the church, we find ourselves in a no-win situation. And the reason I think that we find ourselves in a situation like that is because, well, we're not perfected yet. We're all still sinners after all. Often when conflict arises, as in our text today, The issues are either misrepresented or often the truth is avoided. How many times have you spoke to a person who recently maybe switched churches and you've asked them, well, why did you make the change? And they give you an answer something like this. You know, I just felt like I needed to go in a different direction. What does that mean? Well, I can tell you it's probably a ruse. More than likely, most people 
find themselves in a situation where they need to, you know, make a change because there's been a conflict and it hasn't been properly resolved. In Acts 21, 17 through 36, Paul, I believe, goes through great lengths to resolve a conflict within the church. The conflict has to do with a strained relationship between, on the one hand, believers who come from a Jewish background, and on another, believers who come from a Gentile background. Daryl Bach, somewhat famous commentator, paints the picture of the of this situation in Acts 21. He writes this, Paul's arrival can be dated to a period around, around AD 57, when Jerusalem is tense with rising Jewish nationalism, political unrest, and the presence of a Roman ruler, Felix, who was said to have the instincts of a slave. Most loyal Jews would have viewed Gentiles and Gentile mission with suspicion. The church in Jerusalem is caught in the middle, wanting to preach to the Jews, but supporting outreach to the Gentiles. And Paul, the preacher and the missionary, is stuck directly in the middle of this conflict. Paul goes out of his way, I believe, to try to make both sides in this debate happy. He tries to focus on the gospel issue and not sectarian issues. Here's the point. In conflict and other dangerous environments... Christ can and will be glorified. I want to break our text into three movements tonight. The first movement will be in verses 17 through 26. I'm going to give it this label. Paul makes two efforts at reconciliation. Second movement will be verses 27 through 30. Paul is falsely accused. Third movement will be verses 31 through 36. Paul's rescued from a riot. Let's look at the two efforts that Paul makes at reconciliation. Again, verses 17 through 26. I want to focus in first, verses 17 through 20. Let me read those again. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. The following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now, our scripture tonight leaves one detail out. If you've been following the book of Acts, or if you've read the book of Acts, or read Paul's letters that can be intermingled within this book, you will know that as Paul has been on his Gentile mission throughout the world preaching, He's also at the same time been making a collection, gathering a monetary gift to bring back to the Jerusalem church. The Jerusalem church is a financially poor church. It's been struggling. Paul knows this. And I believe Paul thinks that a way to bridge that gap between Jew and Gentile would be to have the Gentile church help out the Jewish church. And so although it's not mentioned in our text, I think When Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going there for that very purpose. He's mentioned this again and again and again. You can see it as well in Romans 15, verses 25 to 32. The same intent of Paul is in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 12 through 15. Again, the point of that collection 
was to help the struggling church to mend a possible rift. Perhaps the reason that the gift is not mentioned in our text is because it didn't have the effect that Paul wanted it to. Paul's tried his best to reconcile the ethnic division within the church. And part of that gift, I think, was given in order to do just that. But it didn't work. If you notice that in the American church, many times when we have a problem, our solution to the problem is let's throw a little money at it. You been there? Now, I'm not saying that's exactly Paul's intent here. But at the same time, Paul's giving monetary aid to this church, and it doesn't work. Now, let me ask you, when we've just thrown money at an issue, at a problem, did it work? Maybe you've had the same success or lack thereof that Paul had as well. Verse 18, James and, James and the elders, they meet with Paul. And I think they give Paul a second means of healing this rift within the church. The second means is that Paul is to go along with some believers who had made a vow. Help them pay this vow and demonstrate to the Jewish believers that Paul doesn't devalue the word of God, the, the law. Paul views great value in the law. The transition taking place in the book of Acts. You'll notice James is now the leader of the Jerusalem church. James is not acting alone. He's working with the elders. There's an overlap here between, we could say, leadership by the apostles to now leadership among the elders. The elders are now in charge of the Jerusalem church. And they've met with Paul in order to try to help heal this major problem. When Paul meets with them, he records some of the things that have been done among the Gentile mission, and they respond in two ways. They rejoice at the fact that everything that had been accomplished within the Gentile world. And then they inform Paul of this misunderstanding. Verses 20 through 22. Let's read. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They're zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. I believe Paul was misunderstood and also mis uh, misrepresented in this text. Has Paul taught that there's no value in the law? No. He has taught that if you're using the law in order to justify yourself, you're not going to get anywhere. But he doesn't just brush it away and say, well, there's no value in it. Paul's at the center of the issue. A group in the Jerusalem church believes that Paul has abandoned the Old Testament law. Paul sees great value in the law but he's, he will never force Jewish identifiers on Gentile believers. 
Circumcision, in other words, is an indifferent issue. It just doesn't matter all that much. Paul didn't care if Jews practiced circumcision. What he cared about is, are you forcing this practice on Gentiles? If you do that, you're out of bounds. For Paul, for the New Testament, by and large, one is saved by grace through faith. The Jewish things that you, that you might do, they just don't matter. Paul's operational conduct can best be seen in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 20 through 23. He says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. The elders of the church now come together with James, and they meet with Paul, and I think the meeting goes something like this. All right, Paul, you're misunderstood. We realize that. We also realize there's a bit of a rift. Here's a possible solution. We want you to take these four men that have made this Nazarite vow, help them financially to pay their vow. When the Jews who are believers in Jerusalem see this, they'll know that you're still a devout follower of God. The solution can be read in verses 23 through 26. Again, let's read God's word. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. It's common practice for Jews when they traveled in the Gentile territory upon returning to Jerusalem to go through a seven-day purification period. They would do this before they entered into the temple. Perhaps Paul is going through a purification rite like that. He might be coming to the end of that period of time when James and the elders commend him, you're coming to the end of this time. There's other men who have made a vow. They're coming to the end of their time. You could kind of meet in the middle and help them out. They've made a Nazarite vow. Nazarite vow in Numbers 6, verses 1 through 21, consisted in abstaining from wine or anything made from a fermented drink for a period of 30 days. After this time, you would shave your head and present your hair at the temple. It would be burned on the fire on the altar. 
James and the elders believe that, Paul, if you will help these men, this will greatly ease some of the tension within this church. Paul's willing to make an accommodation as long as salvation by grace and through faith is not compromised. And I don't believe it is here. Verse 25 makes clear that the Gentile issue has already been firmly established. I think verse 25 is an echo back to Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. In other words, we've already settled the issue. What do Gentiles need to do when they come to faith in Christ? Well, the answer is just avoid pagan things. That's it. Church in Acts 15 doesn't tell them, well, you've got to become just like a Jew and then you know, add Christianity to it. Jews want to continue some of their cultural heritage. Paul doesn't have a problem with that. As long, again, that it's crystal clear that salvation is by grace, through faith and not by works. Verse 26, we see Paul following through on the advice that James and the elders has given him. He goes out of his way to resolve the conflict. Try to apply this for us. Some of our best efforts at reconciliation within the church, they don't work the way that we want them to. Have you been there? Certainly true for the great Apostle Paul. He's done, I think, everything that he can to build a bridge between the Jewish and Gentile Christians, and his best efforts fail. It's the same for us. There's many times when a member in the church will have a problem. I think when that happens, we first must go to the word of God and ask, what does scripture have to say on this issue? And then secondly, if it's not, you know, a issue that one would divide over for theology, do everything you can to reconcile. But again, often our best efforts will fail. And the, 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 the person who's in the wrong will either feel that they've been wronged or they might misunderstand the issue. The point, I think, is that Paul took every possible step he could to try to heal this rift. I think the point for us is we should try the same thing. Go to the furthest lengths possible to be reconciled if reconciliation can be made. And we know that there's been a group of people following Paul around. All throughout his Gentile ministry, there's been a group called Jews from Asia. And they have afflicted Paul everywhere. And as we learn in our text next, they followed Paul to Jerusalem. These Jews from Asia will not stop until Paul is silenced. And therefore, in verses 27 through 30, they're going to bring up a false accusation against Paul. Again, let's read. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who's teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he's even brought, a, brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they... Uh, thought that Paul had brought him into the temple. 
Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Interestingly to me, Paul took two courses of action to try to resolve a conflict within the church. His enemies from Asia respond with a twofold response. First, they accuse him of this, that he's teaching everyone everywhere things against the law of Moses. Is that true? No. No. Christianity is a fulfillment religion. It's not in contradiction to the Old Testament. It's not a contradiction to the law of Moses. Second, they make up a completely false report that Paul has brought a Gentile, a man by the name of Trophimus, into the temple precincts. Both of these arguments, I think, are baseless. But there's one that's going to carry more force than the other. If you are found as a Gentile in the inner sanctums of the temple, you could be killed. If you're a Jew and you brought a Gentile into the inner sanctums of the temple, you both could be killed. There was a sign separating the court of the Gentiles from the court of the women. The sign read this, No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and the enclosure. Anyone who's caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. In other words... You're a Gentile, you come in this place, you're going to die. It's your fault that we kill you. The Roman authorities, they wouldn't give capital punishment privileges to the Jews by and large. However, this is the one exception. There's a Gentile and he goes in the temple, Jews, have your way with him. What are Paul's opponents doing? Well, they're being extremely clever. These, I think, are the same adversaries that stirred up a riot in Ephesus. Ephesus, the city of Asia Minor, the chief city. And I think now they've followed Paul to Jerusalem. There was unfinished business in Ephesus. They wanted Paul's head. And now they come to Jerusalem. How else are we going to get it done? Make up a crime against the temple. We can nail him on that one. Verse 30 ends with God's messenger being kicked out of God's house. The emotions of the crowd were stirred against Paul. In the heat of the moment, the crowd didn't care if there was any truth to the accusation. They were thirsty for blood. Often we experience differences within the church. And those differences will never be resolved if we act on our emotions without at the same time trying to understand the root issue and the cause of conflict. And again, we could ask, you know, how many times have you seen that within the church? Emotions get stirred up, and all of a sudden, issues don't matter. Truth doesn't matter. What matters is my own vindication. Crowd wanted results to satisfy their emotional duress. Friends, it's never a good judgment, or it's never a good idea to rush into a judgment based on your emotions alone. 
find out the facts, seek the counsel of the elders, and proceed with a plan that would glorify God. These Jews from Asia, they do none of that because I think they don't want to glorify God. All they want is Paul's head. Out of the frying pan and into the fire for the Apostle Paul. Paul's been beat up all over the world, and now he's beat up in Jerusalem. He's bruised for the gospel, but God is faithful. Verses 31 through 36, Paul's rescued from the ensuing riot. As they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Overlooking the temple in Jerusalem, there was a military fortress. It's called the Tower of Antonia. In this fortress, the Romans would keep a close eye on all the Jewish activity. The Jews were very hard to rule. We know that. So did the Romans. In this tower, there were probably several thousand Roman troops. How do we know that? Well, the term tribune in Greek means leader of a thousand. And there were multiple of these men. So what we can extrapolate from that is that the Romans had on hand at all time several thousand troops ready for any unrest. Seeing the mob below, the Romans dispatch their troops. Paul's at the center of the conflict. Therefore, the tribune arrests Paul. He seizes him, and he actually has to carry him out of this mob. As they carry him out, the mob cries out, away with him. Acts is the second part of another work, Luke. If you look at the three words, away with him, in the Gospel of Luke, you know what you're going to find? You'll find the crowds yelling the same thing again. But this time, it's not away with Paul. It's away with Jesus. Luke chapter 23, verse 18. When the crowds reject Jesus in favor of Barabbas, what do they say about Jesus when he's taken away to be crucified? They yell out, away with him. And now they're saying the same thing to Paul, the messenger of the great gospel. At this point in the book of Acts, Paul is confined. He's no longer free to go wherever he wants and to preach the gospel all around the ancient world. And yet, nevertheless, he takes every opportunity still to preach the gospel, even when he's in chains. Paul's journey is characterized by suffering just like Jesus. Here's, I think, the overall point. Paul experienced conflict. Christ experienced conflict. So will you. Often, if you're in the right, 
you will be unjustly treated. It's part of being a believer. It's part of walking in the footsteps of Christ. Paul, we will know, he'll have three opportunities of standing trial because of this very issue. And what we find is that every time he does, it's not Paul that's on trial. It's going to be Christianity that's on trial. And every time that Paul stands before a Roman official, it's the Roman official that Paul has the opportunity to to preach to. And it's the Roman officials that Paul puts in the hot seat. There will be conflict in our lives. We know that. There will be conflict within the church. But I believe that it's possible for Christ to be glorified even in the worst of all situations. This gives us hope. Why does it give us hope? Because from now until Christ comes again in glory, we're going to be in situations like this as well. So we need to know that it's better to be wronged than to try to vindicate yourself in the situation. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for your spirit that flowed in him. Lord, we thank you as well that when he's on trial and and when he's at the center of the uh, issue, Lord, that he focuses in on the fact that this is about you. It's about your grace and what you've given us by your death and resurrection. And so, Lord, as we face various conflicts in our own lives, pray that we would look first to Christ Second, we would look to Paul as he follows you. Lord, help us navigate those difficult roads with much grace. We pray this in in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's respond to the preaching of God's word this evening by standing and singing number 305 in the Trinity hymnal. Arise, my soul, arise. We will sing all verses, concluding with the Amen.